Well, this morning I'm going to teach about pride and humility. Not something I've taught very much at all. I can't even remember teaching on it before. I haven't heard very many sermons about it. So here goes. Why don't you turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. So I was a, a young disciple, wasn't raised in a Christian home, and I found Jesus, and he found me. And, and, and at the same time, my sister got saved, and she wrote me and her, her husband. He was a, a heavy metal rock guitarist in Belleville, Ontario, and uh, in all the leading bands. And, and uh, they met the Lord around the same time, and we found that out about each other. I mean, we had instant fellowship, and, and Graham, my brother-in-law, he and I were in the school of the Spirit together. Everything that the Lord was teaching him, he seemed to be teaching me at the same time. Uh, it was a wonderful uh, thing to have somebody else to compare some stuff with. And uh, Graham, as a, as a guitarist, went through a, 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 an unusual time. The Lord asked them to hang his guitar up. And for years, he couldn't play it. And part of it, was, it had been so much part of his identity and, and was being used in a, in a negative way in his own heart. And when he was finally free of all of that, and it didn't matter, and applause didn't matter, and being, being known as the best guitarist around didn't matter, the Lord said, you can pick it up again. And, and I remember marveling at the, the kind of humility that it would take Graham to lay down a guitar. And he often does that with people, if you're an artist or whatever it is that you're drawing a, a claim from or drawing an identity from. And so uh, I could talk to Graham, and, and I, ran, I, I ran a risk one day, because uh, I was so disgusted with myself, and I, and I wanted to be free. And I'd read, and James said, confess your faults one to another, and you'll be healed. And I... I remember sitting down with Graham, and I just said, I am so proud. I have so much pride in my heart, and I hate it. I'm, I'm disgusted by it. I'd read in Proverbs chapter 6, if you look at verse 16, it says, there are six things the Lord hates. Yes, even seven are an abomination to him. An abomination is that feeling that when you smell something so bad, it snaps your head around and triggers your gag reflex. That's what abomination means. And, and what the Lord hates is a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that dis- devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. The Lord hates those things. It's an abomination to him. I knew that the Lord hated pride. I hated pride. I hated my pride. And so I ran this risk. I, I said, Graham, I just, I, I am so proud. I just hate it. I don't know what to do about it, but I'm just so proud. And, and uh, Graham said, huh, I don't see you that way. I don't know what you're talking about. I said, Graham, I see the pride was so loud in me. I thought everyone could hear it. You know, I thought everyone could smell it. It stunk to me. I mean, every, every th- thought was trying to get applause or trying to get credit or trying to get some honor or some, you know. I just felt like it was all me, me, me on the inside and that surely if I could see it, it must be oozing out. It must be stinking. Other people must be able to smell it. 
you know, people, people who are proud are often the last people to know it. It's kind of like halitosis. Everyone else knows it but them. And, uh, so, and I thought maybe there's some halitosis happening here. You know, I've got bad breath and I don't know it. But, I mean, in this sense, I knew, I knew that every waking moment I was struggling with it. And so when I confessed it, he said, you know, I don't see you that way. I said, you got to be kidding. I mean, it's every, everything I'm doing. It's, it's behind almost every motive that I have. And he says, I don't, I don't see you that way. I don't think that's it. Well, that left me somewhere between hope and confusion, you know, hoping maybe, what if, what if it's not it? But I, it was just pride. I just I knew what the Bible said about pride by that stage of my life. But he didn't see it that way. He didn't see me that way. I mean, it left me in this funny, funny place. Uh, if he had said, yeah, yeah, you got to do something about that. I mean, that would have been, that would have been maybe helpful in the immediate. But he said, no, no, that's not it. I don't see you that way. So I, I, as a disciple, you pray about everything. And as a disciple, I, you learn from everything. And I said, Lord, would you help me understand what's happening? And then I happen to be reading, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Why don't you go to Luke chapter 9 with me? And um, I'm telling you my journey, because it's probably common among us, and it also shows you where we're. Uh, the basis of what we're teaching here today. But chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them, the disciples, as to which one is the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by, by him and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he is least among you, at all will be great. Now, the, the context for this, if you just go back up, just even on the next page, in my Bible at least, uh, three of them had been on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's like, that's like taking three of your team and leaving the rest home. Uh, it must not have gone down very well that they didn't go, to, and they didn't get to see the glory of the Lord. They didn't get to see Moses. They didn't get to see... Uh, uh, Elijah, and, and so, uh, and this whole thing of casting out the devils, and that didn't go over very well. They, the disciples weren't able to cast out the devils when they, uh, Jesus and the three came off the mountain. And so a dispute, an argument. I could see them kind of pushing each other, jostling each other. Mark's account says that Jesus asked them, he says, what are you guys arguing about? Can you imagine you're walking down this dusty laneway and all of a sudden, you know, Jesus is a little bit of a head of you, uh, just having some alone time. And he stops and he says, what are you guys arguing about? And you just kind of freeze. And he knew their heart. He knew the issue of their heart. And he says, and he goes right to the issue. They don't, they're speechless because they, he, he goes after. He says he knew what was going on in their heart. So he says, it's about this thing about being great. Who's going to be the greatest? And they were, that's, that was the issue. They're arguing over who's going to be the greatest among them. And what Jesus did so shocked me as a young disciple who's struggling with pride. I, I remember reading this and closing my Bible, and, and it, almost in unbelief, uh, Jesus didn't rebuke them. Jesus didn't kick them out of the discipleship program. 
He didn't send them home. I would have. I remember, I remember stopping and saying, wow, his response. What he did that's so amazing, he called, put his finger on what it was, and then he gave them the keys to greatness. He didn't say, hey, your desire to be great, your desire to be special or honored or used, used in a special way, that's wrong. That's fundamentally wrong. It's wrong of you to have that in your heart. Jesus doesn't say that. What he says is, here's how you get there. Here's how you become great. He calls this little kid up. I picture it this way. Like Roger, I, my imagination when I meditate on scripture, I picture him calling the little boy and the little boy just obeys and doesn't ask why. Hey, what do you want? Tell me first and I'll come. He just says, come here, come here. And the little kid comes up. He sets them up on a stump and he says, okay, guys, you want to be great? This is the goal. Here's a vision. Become as a little child. Now, he's not saying that in this section, but he is saying it in Mark's account. He's, this is, this is how to become great. I was shocked by that. Because I thought my desire to be great was pride. And it was wrong. I wanted to be great. I wanted to be good at something. I wanted to be effective. I wanted to, I wanted to be somebody. <laughs> and I, I was calling that pride. Jesus said, no. Uh, here's how you become great. Now watch this. Go to Luke chapter 22, just a few pages later. Luke chapter 22. Look at verse 24. Now there is also a dispute among them as to which one should be considered the greatest. <laughs> this is in the same book. This is a few chapters later. They're still visiting that issue again of which one's, which one's going to be the greatest among the 12. And Jesus goes to work at it. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't kick them out of the program. They've just, they're, they're having communion together, and this whole thing is happening. And he says, look, here, there's, a, there's a kind of greatness. There's Gentile greatness. There's the kings of this world. There's Gentile greatness. And they, have a, uh, they lord it over people. They're in position. They tell people what to do, and they, they have to obey. And everyone serves them. He says, that's Gentile. That's the Gentile version. And then he goes, and he says, you know, have you, have you noticed how uh, I'm serving you? And he goes into servant leadership. He talks about that. Talks about who's the greatest. The guy sitting at the table, the guy waiting on the table. We know it's the guy that's sitting at the table. He says, yeah, but look, what I'm, look how I live. Look what I'm, look what I'm doing. So he's using himself as a, as a way to illustrate how to become great. It's hidden. It's hidden. It's hidden in servanthood. There's a lot of things hidden in servanthood. We'll maybe get to that here in a few minutes. But there's a lot of things hidden, a lot of freedoms that are hidden in servanthood. But again, Jesus doesn't say, you proud boys, out of here. Get away. Get away from the table. What are you doing sitting here having communion? You're so proud. Here you are wanting to be great. He doesn't do that. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Let's just stop for a second. Is that amazing? I mean, you have this thing inside of you that you want to be recognized and honored and, and have positions and, and be used and be used well and be used effectively. Is that pride? No. 
doesn't have to be. That desire to be great, I think it's God-given. I think it's God-given. I, I don't know anyone who's saying, I just want to be, be a failure. I just want to be a bum. I don't know. I don't know anyone who's got Jesus on the inside of them who's longing to do that. I think that need for wanting to be in a position of influence is God-given. Now, how you get there is the only issue that Jesus addresses. There's a way to get there that's godly and that's good and that, that will be fulfilled. And then there's a way, there's a Gentile kind of way that, that will wreck your life. That will, that will stink. So I'm struggling with this. There's, there's, there's something inside of me uh, that, that I'm struggling with and, and the Lord's starting to take it apart and saying there's a part of that, there's a part of that that's healthy, that's, that's okay how you have it fulfilled. The need for honor, there, that's in you. In fact, the need for honor is, is in you from Adam, right from the, from the very beginning. The need for glory, and I don't mean glory in, the, in a mystical sense, of, the, uh, of, of respect and, and acclaim. See, almost everybody has this thing where they want their time marked here. Even if it's a monument at their grave, they want some kind of mark to show that they've been here, that they've existed, that they've done something. That's in you from birth. That's in you from Adam. The desire to have glory, that's in you. See, Adam was created in glory and honor. He was created in glory and honor. God put it on him from the very beginning. Of course, in the fall, everything went south. But that need to be the best producer, the best musician, the best guitarist, the best author, the best mom, the best dad, the guy who wears the t-shirt that says best dad or best grandpa, that's in him. Is that wrong? I don't think so. Part of it is because Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, I'm so proud of you as my children. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He writes to the Thessalonians, brand new babies, he says, you are my pride and joy. See, there's a difference between that parental pride where you feel proud that your sons are men of God and they've, they've, they're accomplishing something and they're good and they're godly and they're doing something. That's right. That's righteous. That's, a, that's okay. That's God-given. God feels that. Paul feels that. I'll write something and I'll say, I'm proud of you. And just because I use the word proud, I've said it even from this platform, I've said, I'm proud of you. And people freeze because that's the proud word. I mean, that's, that's the abomination word. Well, Paul said, I'm proud of you. You're my pride and joy. When I stand before Jesus, you'll be my, my crown, my honor. It's not wrong. How you get there is the issue. You can be self-seeking. You can be setting yourself up. You can, be, you can be so hungry, so desperate for honor that you honor yourself. Jesus tells this parable about a guy who's having this feast and a, and a and man comes in and he sits down at the head table. And Jesus isn't concerned about etiquette here. He's talking about something so fundamental to the heart of man. He said, you know, and then someone has to come up and say, brother, uh, 
there's someone more honorable than you. He's here, and that's a, that's a seat. We want him to sit there. Would you take a lower seat? Can you imagine? You would just die. And, and if that was ever put on YouTube back then, they would just die. It would just be awful. And then someone who's more honorable, that they want to put in a place of being up first, being up front, and Jesus, what he does with that, that parable that's masterful, is he's saying, here's how you get to the front. Don't honor yourself. Don't put yourself forward. Let them come to you. He's not saying it's wrong. He's just saying how you do it is right or wrong. Listen, it's in you. You're fighting against something that is God-given. And, and, and there are people who, you know, they'll say, I don't want you to see me. I want to hide behind the cross. And they, they do things that are counter. Uh, they're, they're trying to do something with that in a wrong way. And it it's, it's, uh, becomes distasteful in itself. How do you know when it's pride? I think, there, I think it's possible to have this desire for honor and it can come out in a prideful way. I think that's possible. Uh, you know, there's a Swiss-German kind of pride that is proud of how, what they manufacture. I mean, uh, a Swiss watch, is it any better than that? And then there's, you know, Mercedes and Volvo and, 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 and all these different machines that are made with Swiss integrity and, and, and there's a pride attached to it because it's workmanship and, it, and everybody would love to have it because they know it's going to work, it's going to last. Well, that's the kind of pride that you pour into your work. That's healthy. There's nothing wrong with that. But then in my hometown up in Lavo where we live, there's a guy that drove by and I'm never laughing out loud. He drove by in this old dilapidated truck and written on the side, the name of his carpentry business, and he got written, he says, that if, 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 we, if we didn't build it, it ain't been built. That's a different kind of pride. There's a kind of a British reserve kind of pride, and then there's white supremacist kind of pride that's wrong. There's a kind of pride that, that uh, is always critical, negative, and divisive, and strife-filled. That's wrong. But then there's a kind of pride where you do your best, and you, and you want it to work, and you, you're, doing it, you're building it with integrity. That's right. And so I think what we do that's a mistake, that I was doing as a young Christian, anything that had something related to pride or honor or any of that, I considered it was all bad and it's not it's not you should do your best then the disciples you can imagine so we got this tension in in luke early luke and later in luke right in the middle of luke uh, chapter 14 so we got 9 22 and this is 14 you got this whole section of scripture that's really amazing where james and john come to Jesus, and they even got mom in on it. We find out, I think it's John's a gospel that, that writes that mom got in on it. The mother of Zebedee actually went to Jesus and said, I want my sons to be number one and number two on your right and on your left. Well, it actually says in, in, in Acts, uh, Luke 14 that the brothers went to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, we want to be up front. We want to be on your right. We want to be on, when you come in your kingdom, we want to be on the right and on the left. And uh, Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink my cup? I mean, 
See, the, the way to greatness, we want greatness. We don't realize that the way to greatness is the way, the way up is down. The way to greatness often is painful. And, and so he says, I don't think you really realize what you're asking for. Well, when the other disciples heard that they asked for number one and number two, they were livid. And this great tension breaks out among the 12, almost splits the church. Almost splits the church. Can you imagine that? And then they have to go out two by two, and how do you divide that up? There's 12, and there's two that think they're number one, think they're great. You think you're greater than us? You think you're greater than us? I mean, it created all this tension. And Jesus addresses it because it, does, it is divisive. But again, he doesn't, he doesn't say this desire to be great is wrong. He gives them the keys to show them how to become great. Proverbs 13.10. This is worth turning to. And Beth, maybe we'll put it on the screen behind me. Proverbs 13.10. I was trying to figure out, okay, Lord, I know there's pride in me somewhere. Show me how. And, and pride, is a, pride is a root. You don't often see it. You don't see roots. They lie below the surface. What you see is fruits. And so some way, the way to know that there's pride at work in me uh, is by looking at the fruits of pride, not the root. Most people can't see the root that's taking place there. So here's a fruit that, was, uh, that Jesus has dealt with me about, Jesus has uh, confronted me about. Proverbs 13.10, I, I learned this in the King James Bible, where it says, Only by pride cometh contention. Only, I didn't like the emphaticness of that, only by pride, cometh contention. So the disciples, there, there's some pride at work in here. There's no question about it. But I, I, looked at, I looked at all my broken relationships where I fell out with people and I no longer had fellowship because we had a, a, a words, we had a, a strain in our relationship and now we no longer see each other. And I started looking at the contention as a fruit and trace that back to a root. And I said, oh, there you are. I see you now. I see the pride. The pride, the pride doesn't want to be wrong. The pride doesn't want to admit that he's wrong. The pride doesn't want the other person to be right. I've seen it. I've seen it in church. I've seen it in business. I've seen it in all kinds of settings and families where pride, pride is the root. Contention is the fruit. Step back, step back and look. And I, I did, and I said, I see it. I see pride. I see pride at work that is separating me from my brothers, that is, is creating tension, that is cont contention. Strife. Strife, he says, now listen, this is hard to, hard to get a handle on. Only by pride cometh contention. Think about that. Put that on your refrigerator door. Only by pride. There's pride in there somewhere. And it may be that you felt discounted, that you felt you were to be the one in position or the one chosen or the one that was appreciated. Something happens in the relationship and pride can be at the root of it. We have to look at that. I was... Uh, <laughs> Around this, uh, you know, this whole thing of pride going off, 
uh, I'm a three-part being. I have a fallen nature that's, that's my flesh. And he is called self in the Bible. And he is so arrogant. And he's always putting himself forward. He always wants to be number one. He always wants the applause. He, and that is in me all the time. But that's not me. That's my flesh. Me, I'm born again. Me, I love God. I love the things of God. That's me. In me, my spirit hates what I hear and smell in my flesh. I hate that. But those two things are at war within me constantly in my soul. But my flesh is always proud, is always selfish, self-seeking, self-vaunting himself. Uh, personal aggrandizement, always putting himself out there. He would do that, but when I say no to him, that's humbling myself. I'm humbling myself. Now let's go, let's go to... Um, James chapter 4, and Peter will be right next door, so we'll go to James chapter 4. Look at verse 10. James says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. There's a promise in here of being lifted up, being put in position, being put in out front, being put in a place of, uh, of looking successful. He says he'll do that. The way to get there is you have to humble yourself. That's you. That's, that's on you. That's you saying no to yourself. You saying, I know what you want. I know if I follow you, I'm just going to be embarrassed. If I follow you, I'm going to have to retract. I'm going to have to go back. I'm saying no to you. That's humbling yourself. In fact, uh, yourself will say, why don't you pray right out loud and pray the most amazing prayer that they've heard in this small group. And, and your spirit says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to let you have your way. I'm not gonna, I'm, that's not the right motive. But then your spirit says, but I'm going to pray because your flesh won't like it when you pray with humility. And so a way to, way to humble yourself is to pray, but out of a different motive. But that war, that sense of having two motives, I've been, I've been since I talked to Graham that day, I've struggled with this stuff every day up until this day. The wars never ceased for me. I never could find a place of fasting long enough or praying hard enough or uh, having enough closeness with Jesus where that fleshly nature that's always speaking and always put himself, he hasn't ceased talking. I don't think he'll cease talking and wanting to, want, wanting to have uh, applause from people and credibility and his name put on things. I don't think that'll happen until the day he dies. But I can say no to him. I don't have to let him drive my life. I don't let him have to be the, the, the motive behind what I do. So some, what happens is he'll present himself as this is what you should do. People will think you're great if you say this or do this. My spirit says, no, we're not going to do that. And, and resists him, actually puts him down, says, no, we're not going to do that. But then it's not just saying no, it's finding a way to, to move and to minister in humility. Humility is, a, in a sense, just being honest about your true condition. Humility has to do with honesty. When James says, he says here, he says, um, humble yourself in the sight of God and he will lift you up. I think he's talking about being honest. 
Let's look at Peter's account. It's very similar. It's almost the same language. First Peter, chapter 5. First Peter, chapter 5. Let's look beginning in verse 5. <laughs> Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive one to another. That takes humility. It takes humility for the young guy, but it takes humility for mutual submission. Yes, all of you be clothed, uh, uh, be submissive one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I could honestly say, translate that, God gives grace to the honest. He'll give grace to you just being honest about where you're at, what you're going through, being honest, but still moving in effectiveness, still tapping into grace so that what you do is, is, is Mercedes-Benz stuff. It's, it's, it's Volvo stuff. It's, it's, it's built right. It's built, it, you, there's a still a way to be effective at what you do. You don't just say, no, my flesh just squawked and said, stand up and do this. You're going to get some acclaim. So I'm, I'm putting them down, but now I'm not doing anything because I'm afraid of that motive. I don't like that motive. No, somehow you have to say, I say no to him, but I'm saying yes to accomplishing what needs to be accomplished with humility. And then grace kicks in. And next thing you know, people are coming to you and saying, you, that's the best I've ever seen. That's the best I've ever tasted. That's the best. That, I mean, that really works. That is done with, uh, and they start telling people, next thing you know, glory and honor is coming your way. So it doesn't mean that you don't do anything. You're just neutralized because of that motive. That motive will always come. It's never left me, but it hasn't stopped me. I just don't yield to it. I have to move in, an, I have to move in another way because I want to be, listen now, I want to be great. I want our church to be great. I want my sons to be great. I, I want to do great things. That's not wrong. How you get there, what they're, James and Peter are actually doing is they're laying out a promise of greatness. He's, look at verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. He's not afraid of you being exalted. He's not afraid of your church being exalted, being on the map, being something that people uh, rejoice over and marvel at. That's not wrong. He says he'll, he'll exalt you because that's what you want. It's actually what God wants. He wants your CD to be the best. It's not wrong. How you do it he says the way, the way up is down. The way you get there is you humble yourself. That fallen nature, that motivation, you have to say no to that. You have to humble yourself. Go the opposite of what he's saying. Like, like for, I think Jesus demonstrated this when he uh, healed someone and he said, now look it, don't tell anyone what happened to you. I think Jesus is saying, if, if anyone's, my fame is going to spread abroad, God's going to do it, and it's not going to be me promoting myself, me trouting them out and telling everyone, hey, I healed this guy. 
Uh, one of the things Isaiah said about Jesus is he wouldn't go through the marketplace saying, healing, 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 come and get your healing. He's not going to do it that way. Jesus actually worked hard to go against uh, what was common to men of putting yourself forward. His own brother said, you know, everyone else who wants to be great, they go down and they put themselves forward. Jesus wouldn't bite. Jesus wouldn't go for it. He knows that's how men do it. If you've really got something, get out there and proclaim it. And, and I think Jesus said, I heard that before. I heard that in the wilderness. I heard that when Satan was standing in front of me. They, his brothers were saying the same thing. He said, that's how men do it. If they're going to be big, they're going to get right out there. Let me tell you something about humility. Humility is not embarrassed by starting small. Starting, starting small. There's something about our flesh that wants it big and now and flashy and impressive from the start. Humility is, it doesn't matter if it's borrowed, it doesn't matter if it's just been cleaned up, it doesn't matter if I had to fix it, it's a place to begin. It's a place to begin. You stop and think about this in terms of humility. Here God Almighty is going to start the greatest thing on earth called the church. He said, let's, let's establish a church in the earth. He says, great. How do we do that? He says, well, everything I do, I just start small. Everything in my thinking, kingdom thinking, he's the king, is seeds. How small do you want to go? He says, let's, let's, let's find 12. We'll start with three. We go to six. We go to nine. We'll go to 12. Then we got it up to 70. When the day of Pentecost came and they're starting the church, there's only 120, including mom and his brothers. I mean, that's small. It's not putting yourself out there in neon right from the start. It's actually going against that. It's, it's going against what the world does and how the world does things. There's nothing wrong with starting small. Working it out, figuring it out, get the bugs worked out of it. I remember one time the Lord sent us to a little village called Per Brody, and it was in a swamp. It was in the middle of nowhere. Even on the map, it said middle of nowhere. It was really in the middle of nowhere. And, it, and it was a, there was no roads in the Per Brody. We drove across lawns and through a creek. The driver we hired to take us there from Kiev was a city guy. He couldn't believe where we're taking him. Where are you, how do you know there's someone back in here? I mean, it was Para Brody. And the church was small and divided and poor. And, and, and we're in a log house uh, in the middle of nowhere. And I felt Jesus speaking to me. He says, learn how to do it here. And he says, I'll give you the whole country. And so we just stayed with it. And we learned how to how to work and how to communicate his grace and parabody, and we had all kinds of trouble, all kinds of difficulties. In fact, uh, the pastor never even came to see us for the first week that we're there. I mean, never even came to say goodbye because we were such a different animal than anything that they'd ever seen before. And people were arguing outside of our windows of whether or not we're even Christians. And one of them says, they, they're not Christians. They don't dress like us. They don't look like us. He, one's got a wedding ring on. They're not Christians. And they're arguing back. And the other one said, they must be Christians. He said, no, they're not Christians. We could hear them. He said, well, how do you know they're Christians? He said, look how they love us. And we learned how to, how to communicate grace at Parabrody. And then one day, one, actually one night, a motorcycle came into town with a sidecar. And there's a guy, and he's a messenger. He's saying there's some brothers in, the, in this other city. And they want you to come and work with them. 
And we said, we're here. We're, we're working here in Prairie Brody. He said, no, you, this, the, they want you to come and work with them. And we're kind of stuck because we're still in this mode. If we can work it out in Prairie Brody, if we can understand how to do Prairie Brody, if we can, and we're walking the streets, we're seeing all kinds of neat things happen in Prairie Brody. But it turned out this invitation to go work with these guys, uh, they, we finally met, and they were part of an underground Bible school that was under the communist period. And it turned out they were the best men in the country. I mean, the best guys who knew what they're doing, who knew where to go. And they opened for us the entire country. We could go anywhere. And we did. Just all kinds of things opened. But if we hadn't done Para Brody, we would never be able to do anything else. It's the place to begin. See, there's something in us. Here's the conflict. We have this desire, a vision for greatness. Kind of like Joseph. Joseph says, I see, I see you bowing down. I, he had a vision of a God-given vision of greatness. The route to getting there was different than anything he could have ever imagined, but God took him to greatness. I mean, Joseph walks into Pharaoh's court. He becomes the second highest person on the planet. Because the king of Egypt is the highest person on the planet. And the highest person on the planet calls you father. God put him there. He's not opposed to exalting you. He's not opposed to taking you to greatness. The route can be disconcerting. The route can be confusing. You have this vision for greatness, and, but, but you can't buy anything. Or you don't have any people. Or, or no one shows up. And it can be really frustrating because you have this vision of greatness, but at the same time, the reality doesn't match the vision. Humility can navigate that. Humility can say, well, I'll let God deal with that. I'll, 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 I'll pour everything into what I have here. I'll just give myself completely to this. Humility can say, I can live with this because I know what I have. I know what I have under the hood. David knew what he had under the hood. David on the backside of nowhere, who wasn't even invited to the anointing party with Samuel. He wasn't even invited. Isn't that an amazing thing? He says, don't you have one more? He says, yeah, he's out there looking after the sheep. He's the runt of the litter. The little redhead, blue-eyed boy comes running in in front of all his brothers. Samuel sees him. The Lord says, this is him. He pours oil all over his head in front of his brothers. Can you imagine that moment? And they're looking at him like, this is the stinkiest little shepherd boy. I mean, shepherds now, there's kind of some kind of glory with it. If you're around real shepherds, there's no glory in it. It's a stinky, dirty job. I got down in the Patagonia, and we got to shepherd places where they're looking after the sheep, and we thought, they just hired the worst people on the planet to be the shepherds of this place. David was just, they just considered him a nothing. Then... When he goes out to see the battle and he goes out to bring cheese to his brothers and, you know, cheese to the commander and bread for his brothers, he gets out there and, and he says, hey, what's going on? What's, and he says, well, there's this giant. He comes out every morning. This has been going on for a long time. He's, he says, well, what? And, and there's a reward. The king said that he'll honor him. The king says he'll give him his daughter. He'll make him rich. And, and David says, tell me again, what did, the, what did he say? What, what? And his brother, his older brother, hears him. He says, I know the pride of your heart. That's actually what he said. I know the pride of your heart. I know you're down here. I know the pride of your heart. He nailed him with an accusation. That actually wasn't in David's heart. David, listen now, 
David was great. Just no one knew it. Everything had been done in secret. He had done great things. He had, he had, a, a, a lion came walking in the, in the camp one time, started walking away with a lamb, and David ran toward the lion, grabbed him by the beard, took the lamb out of his jaws, and slew him. I mean, you got to have something under the hood to do that. And then a bear comes moseying in the camp, picks up a lamb, starts walking away. Anybody else would say, that's just one lamb. He can have him. There's plenty more where they come from. They're popping lambs this time of year. But he doesn't. There's something in his heart. God sees him. He's, look at this kid. Look at, he ran toward the bear, grabbed the, the lamb out of his jaws and slew the bear. I mean, and, and God's saying, I, I'm going to take him from following the ewes in the sheepfold and a, someone with a heart like this for lambs, I'm going to give him my people. I'm going to make him ruler, shepherd, a shepherd king over my flock. Because God saw something. His brothers didn't see it. His dad didn't see it. Nobody saw it. But David knew. David knew that he'd written Psalm 23. Listen now. Talk about great hits. JB, talk about number one singles. Psalm 23. Is there a better? I mean, that's the biggest hit of all time. David wrote that as a teenager. He wrote the greatest song ever written, Psalm 23, and no one knew it. But he knew it was in him. He had, listen, he had greatness percolating in him. He was noble. He was a king. Joseph was noble while he was in prison. When Joseph was brought out of prison, you know what they did to get him ready to meet the They shaved him and changed his clothes. That's all they had to do. No psychotherapy, no medication, no, no restoration. He walked out of that prison like a prince. He walked into Pharaoh's court. He looked like a king. He looked like a king because he was. He was great, but even the fetters were cutting into his, his skin. He was great. David was great. We don't know. We don't know what's going on inside of you, but there's greatness in this place. There's greatness. How we get there, God wants to exalt you in due time. He wants to do that for his glory, for his honor. He takes pride in his, his children succeeding, his children being successful, his children accomplishing things, his children making a difference, his children coming to bear, coming to bear and changing circumstances. He takes pleasure in that. He wants to honor you. He wants to. The way up, though, can be a little disconcerting. The route can be different than anything you imagine. I knew I had books in me. I knew, I knew I was great, and, but no one knew it. I knew there was stuff in I knew I was a great pastor, but my pastor wouldn't even let me preach. I knew I was a great pastor. I was studying how to be a pastor. I just didn't have any people. I just didn't have a place to practice it, but I, I, it, was, it was growing inside of me. And so finally the father opened up a, a, a flock for me, and he gives me 21 people. And the building that we used, the first meeting house that we had, it was institutional and green all the way through. All the plumbing showed. It wasn't Vogue back then. It was embarrassing. 
and all the rust stains of the plumbing ran down the walls, had three or four different colors of carpet, not a single chair matched in the place. Outside, there's no sign. It, it's, there's a sign that says Gould's Pumps. We thought of using that for the name of the church. There's two abandoned cars. We're on a one-way, dead-end street. Nobody knows we're there. But our people, we gather together, and, and, and this is the honest truth. These are amazing things. We're there, and the glory of the Lord was in the place. And, and this is the honest truth. We looked at each other, and we said, this thing's going to go all over the world. We're going to go all over the world. We're going to go to other nations. We're going to be world changers. And it wasn't, it wasn't arrogance. It was said with such humility. And we had the kind of level of trust that we could say that. And we could laugh among ourselves because it was true. It was true. Looking in, it didn't look, it didn't look very successful. I remember, I remember God wanting to take me somewhere. And so the way up is down. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 8, in fact, you can turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is profound. Um, uh, you could so easily read right over it, not really see it for what it is. But it's profound for this reason. Deuteronomy is kind of a recapping. This is just before Moses dies. And it's a recapping of everything. It's a summary book. It's called The Law. The whole book is called The Law. Moses is summarizing but he does something that's amazing. Something that had never happened before. And that something is this. God explains himself. See, when he was leading them out, he didn't explain what he was after. He, didn't, he wasn't explaining that he was going to take them who are a people who are not a people, make them the greatest people on earth. He didn't explain that. He just said, I'm taking you, I'll take you to a land that's flowing with milk and honey, I'll take you to freedom, get you out of bondage. But he doesn't explain what he's doing, because he doesn't. He's not doing that in you, and he didn't do that in me. But then there's a point in the journey when you're so far into it, and you're so committed to the process, that he stops this, you know, I just want to let you know, here's what I'm after. Here's really what I'm doing. And Deuteronomy 8 is that moment for the first time. You can read the law. You won't read anything like Deuteronomy 8. He said, look, at, he says, I'm going to make you so successful. I'm going to make you so wealthy. You're going you're gonna to have, have so much. And, and in order to bless you, in order to give you so much and that not wreck you and, and you not forget me, what I've done is I've taken you through the wilderness and, and I, I took everything out of your life. It, it was a, a time of subtraction. I was subtracting everything so that I could give you everything and it wouldn't hurt you. He said, I've, I humbled you. I let you go hungry. I, want, I let you go hungry so that you would learn how to live. Not by bread, but by every word of that comes out of my heart. I, I, was, I was after something so grand, so big. I wanted you to know the way I did that is I let you go without. I humbled you. I took you through a lonely place, 
a desert place, a desperate place, a place where there's nothing, nothing grows. There's nothing to do. There's no, there's no help. There's nothing. And the only, thing that you're, the only way you're going to eat is if you believe me and act on my word, and then you'll eat. And, and he said, I'm doing this so that you'll be great. <laughs> you're going to be the greatest. He didn't say this, but you're going to be the greatest people that's ever been. But I can't do that without risk losing everything. So I took you through a, a wilderness time, a stripping time, a humbling time, a depressing time. I chastened you. I disciplined you. I did things that I did things that I knew blew your mind, but here's what I'm after. I want you to fear me. I want you to live. I want you to survive. I want you to be great and survive greatness. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's a summary of what he's after. I remember reading this and saying, oh, 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 I get it, I get it. I'll embrace the wilderness, the, the humility. I remember when I was uh, you know, going through preparing for ministry, preparing, I knew, I had a vision by this time that I was going to go all over the world and start churches and train leaders. I had a vision. I couldn't tell anybody because it, it was unbelievable. I didn't even have a passport. None of my family had a passport. No one in my family had ever been anywhere, done anything. And here, who am I that I've got this vision of going all over the world? And, 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 and uh, it just seemed too over the top for someone like me. And here I had this vision cooking in me, a vision of greatness. <laughs> But the reality was, I was driving a Pinto. If you ever have driven a Pinto, my Pinto, my Pinto had long doors, had such long doors that they would sag. I would have to pick the door up to close it. And I'm, a, I'm in a business suit. I got a briefcase. I'm out selling. I'm out working for uh, a newspaper. It happened to be the worst newspaper in town. And so, it, I mean, it was humble working for them. It took humility. But as <laughs> I picked up my door to close it, and, and it was so rusty that finally when I picked it up one day to close it, it closed and would never open again. <laughs> and I'd done it to the other door. So now neither, my, neither of my doors, there's only the two big long doors on the pin and then the hatchback, my doors wouldn't open, so I'd have to leave the window down ajar a little bit that I could press it down, make sure no one's looking, <laughs> park downwind from my customer, climb into the window, climb into the car in my suit, and then get to my next customer and park in some way that I could climb out of the window. And I knew I was great. I knew I was destined for greatness, and here I'm climbing in and out of the car, the window of the car, and I just kept doing it because I, I knew God was working. I knew something deep, I knew something profound was happening. I, didn't, I don't think I knew Deuteronomy 8 by this time, but that's, he was humbling me. There's a part where you humble yourself, then there's a part where God humbles you. And I let this happen. I remember parking, pulling up beside really nice, normal cars, and my car would shake, rattle, and roll. I had stopped smoking, but my car was still smoking. 
the thing was rusty. All the bottoms of the door had eaten out. They didn't open. And I'd pull up beside him in my suit. But I knew, I knew inside I was great. I knew I was somebody. I knew that God had destined me for greatness. And I submitted to that process. I never complained. I just allowed that to take place. If God, if that's what you want to do in me, if this is, if this is what you want to do in me, and I submitted to it gladly until one day, a day that, that, that changed everything. Uh, I could climb in another, that car. But one day I watched as my wife, who was pregnant, climb into the window of the car, and it broke my heart. <laughs> and I, I surrendered. I surrendered at a depth I'd never been to before. It was so embarrassing, so painful, that I said, Lord, if this is what you want, if this is the route, and I just surrendered. And about a week later, he gave me another car. He had gotten what he wanted. He'd take me someplace that I couldn't get to on my own. I'll tell you, he's done that so many times in my life. He's done that so many times. He's done that this year in me, in, in, in other ways, in other parts of my heart. It never... It never stops because there's still places to go and levels to get to. And, but there's a David in me. There's a, uh, there's a Joseph in me. And if the way up is down, I won't resent it. I won't resist it. I'll humble myself. I'll not vomit myself. I won't put myself forward. This is a constant tension Pride and humility is about seeing. It's about seeing. Samuel said to Saul, he said, when you, were, when you were little in your own eyes, God anointed you as king over his people. When you were little in your own, it's how you see yourself. I'll tell you one of the most freeing things. We're going to have the worship team come in a few minutes. One of the most freeing things is clothing yourself in the garments of a servant. And then you're free from the opinions of other people. When, when you're a bond servant of Jesus and you've nailed your ear to the, do, the post, there's, there's, there's this moment where you serve him. It doesn't really matter what other people think about you or how they see you. You serve him. There's... There's hidden freedoms in servanthood that are so delicious. <clears throat> you don't have to strive. You don't have to put yourself forward. One of the most satisfying things I could tell you is, is when God honors you. When you've said no to your old man and what he wants, and you've said no, and you've said no, and you've said no, and then the moment comes when someone else comes and perceives greatness inside of you or perceives grace inside of you. They say, come, we want you to do this. And there's honor in it, and it comes out. And you can actually enjoy it. You're free to actually enjoy it. And you can go back to your room, and you say, Lord, that was you. 
And I just want to put that on an altar. I want to offer that up to you as a sweet savor. That was you. You did that. My fingerprints were in on it. No manipulation. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't set that up. You can savor it because the, when, the, when the king honors you, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I want you to know the wonder of being honored by Jesus. There's nothing more satisfying. There's nothing more delicious to your heart than when he honors you. But the way to get there is you refuse to honor yourself. Beth, you have it. Why don't you put up 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. This is the amplified, ber amplified version of what we read. Likewise, you younger men of lesser rank and experience, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Tie on the servant's apron, for God is opposed to the proud and disdainful to the presumptuous, and he defeats them, but he gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourself, yeah, and he says, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, set aside self-righteous pride, so that he may exalt you to a place of honor in his service at the appropriate time. What a beautiful rendering of that. But I love the line. He says, clothe yourself in humility. Put on the, the, the servant's garb. Talk about job security. No one's going to steal your job. There's freedoms in this. No one's going to take your place. You're secure. You're sad. No one's going to take your place. There's, we've all seen two kinds of pastors. We see the pastor who has to have the best, number one, be honored, and he's resentful if he's not. He has to have everything. Everything is around him. We see that. And then there's this kind of place where you can humbly uh, be a real strong, decisive leader, but you don't care who gets the credit. You're not in it for the love of numbers is the root of all evil. The, lo the love of statistics is the root of all evil. The love of who gets credit is the root of all evil. It's so freeing to be free from that. Then you're just you're able to focus on other things. You don't care if someone else if someone else on the team is is honored because that that thing worked. Man, that just feels good. It just feels right. You don't have to be you don't have to be numero uno. And that's really what being when Jesus the issue is about being first. It's really being number one. There's a place where you can be number one. You can be number one. It's how you get there. It's your attitude when you are there. It's the honesty say, I know where I come from. I know what Pinto I drove. I know, I know what my first laptop was like. I, 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 know, I know where I come from. I know my roots. I think the people who we like in business and the people who we like who are celebrities, who are down to earth, what it is is they just they see themselves with humility because they know where they came from. They know the route and they're just grateful for any good thing that happens because they've been through a long barren route to get there. That's the most freeing thing. Here's what I want you to come away with. Let's summarize this. I want you to know that all pride is not the same. There's a healthy, God-given kind of need that's, that we call pride that's really from God. And I want you to make a distinction. Every time you see the word in the, in the Bible, it's not always a negative word like it is in our culture, in our Christian culture. Not all pride is the same. Greatness is not wrong. 
how you get there is the issue. Letting God take it. Letting God. Here's how Jesus exalted. Here's how he was exalted by the Father. He hung him naked on a cross. There was nothing but a statement of shame. So that now, only through his name can anyone be saved. There's no other name under heaven like him. And everything is about Jesus. It's all point. But the way to that greatness was through the shame, the embarrassment, the pain, the awfulness of the cross. If he did that with Jesus, will he not do that through your life? Will he not do that with your life? Is that not the way that he'll take you to what's in your heart? You've seen something. You know you're built for something more. You're built for something more. There's more under the hood in you than, than any of us have seen. It's in there. God wants it to come out for his, his glory and for his honor. And you'll taste it on the way through. There's a part of it that he will not be ashamed to have you sit at his right or at his left. That wasn't the issue. How you get there, that's the issue. Who gives it to you, that's the issue. Amen? Sorry for breaking down. I love my wife. I don't tell that story very often, but she's... She's such an honorable woman. And to see her crawling and out of a dilapidated old beat-up pinto. When she married me, it was like the Queen of England marrying a homeless man. <laughs> and it's been that way. But thank you, Heather, for all that you did. I told her, if you stick with me, I'll take you places. <laughs> We've been a few places. But we're not finished yet. There's still stuff in my heart I want to do. There's things I want to see. Don't you have that same thing beating in your heart? Yeah. Worship team, why don't you come? We've got about 30 minutes. Why don't we just do this? Why don't you get on your knees and put your head in a pew? Do business with God, or you can come lay on the carpet. There's carpet you can lay on over there. You can put your face to the wall. You can stand in a, in a windowsill. You can go for a walk. You don't have to stay here. But let's, let's go before the Lord and say, Lord, I say yes to what you want to do in my heart. I say yes to the wilderness. I say yes to the work you're doing inside of me. I know You've put good things in me for a reason. I want it. I want to get there. Tell them you're longing for, for greatness. Tell them your longing that's in your heart. <laughs> and let's see what he does with this. But let's humble ourselves before the Lord today. Can we do that for this next half hour?